We apologise to the listener of this tape. There is a hum in the background. This is on the master recording. The fourth chapter of Zechariah. I'm reading from the standard version. From verse 1, Zechariah chapter 4. And the angel that talked with me came again and waked me as a man that is wakened out of his sleep. And he said unto me, What seest thou? And I said, I have seen, and behold, a candlestick all of gold, (coughs) with its bowl upon the top of it, and its seven lamps thereon. There are seven pipes to each of the lamps which are upon the top thereon and two olive trees by it, one upon the right side of the bowl and the other upon the left side thereof. And I answered and spake to the angel that talked with me, saying, What are these, my Lord? Then the angel that talked with me answered and said unto me, Knowest thou not what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. Then he answered and spake unto me, saying, This is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. Who art thou, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel thou shalt become a plain, and he shall bring forth the top stone with shoutings of grace, grace unto it. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hand shall also finish it. And thou shalt know that the Lord of hosts hath sent me unto you. For who hath despised the day of small things? For these seven shall rejoice and shall see the plummet in the hand of Zerubbabel. These are the eyes of the Lord which run to and fro through the whole earth. Then answered I and said unto him, What are these two olive trees upon the right side of the candlestick and upon the left side thereof? And I answered the second time and said unto him, What are these two olive branches which are beside the two golden spouts which empty the golden oil out of themselves? And he answered me and said, Knowest thou not what these are? And I said, No, my lord. Then said he, These are the two anointed ones that stand by the Lord of the whole earth. Now, this evening, I want really, by the grace of God, in a rather informal way, it's not so much a Bible study as a message, to gather up um, some of the things that God has been saying to us as a people in the last few weeks. We will not be able to explore everything um, that I, uh, the statements I make, because uh, some of those uh, matters we have already gone into, and it will just be simply um, belaboring a point. We shall emphasize certain things, and we shall point out things that need to be pointed out and need to be defined. If you will turn to Zechariah uh, 4, it really is all summed up in in verse 2, What seest thou? 
And I said, I have seen and behold a candlestick all of gold. More correctly, a lampstand. It wasn't a candlestick. It was a lampstand. A lampstand all of gold. Now, we know, I think, as a people, that God has in the past months been speaking to us about this lampstand all of gold. And it has been this that has been the concern and burden of our hearts that we might see its meaning and significance. And above all, we may not just become theologically acquainted with its meaning and significance, but might become experimentally um, uh, acquainted uh, with its meaning and its significance. In other words, what we want as a people is to know what this lampstand really means in experience. Um, we don't just want it as a pretty biblical theme. We don't just want it as something that is in the Bible and very wonderful and very mysterious and a, a, a glorious symbol. But we want to know why has the Lord said to us, I have set before thee a lampstand all of gold. Why is it that he has in the past months, as it were, led us in the way that he has led us and brought us uh, back again and again to this matter in different ways? Now, I think it is quite clear uh, I hardly think it needs to be said here that the lampstand, all of gold, represents the house of God. It represents more, if you like, than the science of the house of God. The, the, the sort of just the outward form, the, the functions, the, the offices, the the, uh, the sort of character of it as such outwardly. It, it, it has more to say, it signifies more than that. But nevertheless, I think it is quite clear that it represents the house of God. For we have it in this chapter, in verse 6 um, of 7, Who art thou, O great mountain? This the angel says in answer uh, to Zechariah's question, who, who art thou, O great mountain, before the rubble thou shalt become a plain, and he shall bring forth the top stone with shoutings of grace, grace unto it. Now, those of you who know the book of Zechariah and Haggai, you know that it was all these prophecies were given at the beginning and in the midst of a great building work. The, the whole conflict over whether the house of God was going to be rebuilt and completed. And these prophecies came just at that point. And therefore, this lampstand which Zechariah saw was intimately connected and related to the rebuilding and the completion of that temple, of that house. Everything was related to that. And if we turn to the New Testament, we have it put in an even bolder way in Revelation and chapter 1, where we read of the Lord walking in the midst of, of seven golden lampstands. The same lampstand again. Revelation chapter 1 
Verse 12, and I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like unto a son of man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about at the breast with a golden girdle. Verse 20, the middle part of the verse. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are seven churches. The seven lampstands are seven uh, churches. And then we go on to the seven in chapter 2 and chapter 3. We read the actual places that are represented symbolically by uh, these golden lamp stand. So I think it goes without saying that in fact um, this lamp stand all of gold represents the church. It represents the church not only in its eternal aspect, in its, uh, in its timeless aspect, but represents the church in its practical local expression. Now, also, I think we have to go a little bit further than that and say that there is a phrase, particularly in the book of Revelation, that you will find in um, um, verse 2 of chapter 1, who bear witness of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ. Then again, verse 9 uh, for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. If you read through the book of Revelation, you will find that this phrase, the testimony of Jesus, comes again and again and again. And this testimony of Jesus is held by the church, which is a very interesting point. It's held by them. The actual word is who hold the testimony of Jesus. It's been obliterated, unfortunately, in the New uh, English uh, Bible. But literally, the idea was they don't just give testimony and they don't just proclaim the testimony of Jesus, but they hold the testimony of Jesus just like the, the lampstand holds the seven lamps that give the light. The seven lamps were, were fitted, one in each uh, of the tops of the, of the, of the six branches and the, and the center branch, making the seven. And uh, those were the things that were filled with the oil. Uh, those were the lamps. And uh, the lampstand held those lamps which gave the light. And so really, in, we have to say that the lampstand, as we see it, is is really summed up in this phrase, the testimony of Jesus. What is the testimony of Jesus? The testimony of Jesus is the presence of God. The committed presence of God. Therefore, we are back once again to what we were saying on Sunday morning about glory. Not that I'm going to say uh, 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 much about glory. Now, that's uh, I'm going to say more about that at another time, I trust. Um, but, you see, we're back again to the, the whole, all these subjects that we've been talking about are all interrelated. The testimony of Jesus was the presence of God in a man. How can I put it? He that hath seen me 
hath seen the Father. No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. Or he hath brought him into view. He has actually, as it were, manifested God in a way that you and I can understand. Back again to Sunday morning. It is the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The testimony of Jesus. Of course, in Revelation and uh, uh, toward the end, last chapters, in chapter 19 and verse uh, 10, we read this. And I fell down before his feet to worship him. It was an angel. And he said unto me, See thou do it not. I am a fellow servant uh, with thee and with thy brethren that hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now does that mean, uh, does that mean the testimony of Jesus is that now and again someone prophesies? Is the testimony of Jesus only to be confined to this book, which is, of course, absolutely prophetic? Surely it means the testimony of Jesus. He was the word of God, of course, and we have it expressed in this book. But he is more than even this book. The Lord Jesus is the manifestation of the mind and the thought of God. The heart of God revealed, as one of our hymns so beautifully puts it. And the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. In other words, the whole thought in the testimony of Jesus, we hold it, is it is the manifestation of the mind and the thoughts of God and the heart of God to this world. We Christians are not meant to be just so many little religious units, even spiritual units, running hither and thither and saying things and handing out a tract here and, and, and having a little bit of prayer there and reading the Bible over there and, and so on and so forth. But we Christians are meant to be a vessel which holds the testimony of Jesus, which is represented by this symbol, the lampstand, all of gold. In other words, we have to say that God, who in his great mercy and grace is a realist and not an idealist, is always adjusting himself, though he never for one moment lets go of his supreme objective he is always adjusting to things as they are and that is why he uses so many things and takes up so many things that you and I cannot understand you know the Protestants say that no one can be saved amongst the Roman Catholics my dear friend that's nonsense absolute nonsense and only the most bigoted and blinded with prejudice can believe it. The fact of the matter is there are many who have found God and are born of God. Of course, Protestants can't understand why do they stay in Rome? They should come out. And then you get the good old Baptist saying, why are there so many who love the Lord in the Anglican church? They should come out. 
And then there are those amongst us, those called the brethren, and they say, why are they in the Baptist church? They should come out. Because, you see, we all feel when we see something, people should come out. They should be faithful. They should come out. But the fact of the matter, and I am not making any plea at all for staying in the thing, or any of it. <laughs> not one single part of it. But the fact remains that God is a realist. And when he finds one of his own children, even in, a, in the Roman church, he uses that one and blesses that one. Extraordinary as it may seem to some. And so it goes on. But it's not that the Lord has for one single moment forsaken his objective. He has not. And if he can, he will move us on and on and on. Before him stands always this which is signified by the lampstand, all of gold. That's really, in one sense, we can say the supreme objective of God. Everything is related uh, to that. Now, that is just an introduction to um, uh, this matter on the lampstand, and I trust it has defined and clarified some of the things that have been said over these past weeks by different brethren. Um, this lampstand, all of gold, is the house of God. But it is more than the, than we could say, it is more than the doctrine of the church. It is more than the science of it. It goes much deeper than that. It goes to the heart of the matter which is that that vessel, that corporate vessel, should hold the testimony of Jesus, that it should be, as it were, the means by which God manifests himself, manifests his mind, manifests his thought, manifests his heart, reveals himself. It should be that wherever that vessel is found, not only do the saints come into the light and are broken up and dealt with. It's not just like a, a, a little chapel where you can get away with spiritual murder, if you know what I mean. I mean, you can do all kinds of things and you can get away with it. But the house of God, wherever the house of God is found, is the bulwark and the pillar, or, as the other version puts it, I think better, the ground and the pillar of the truth. The ground of reality. So that you can say things and get away with them elsewhere. But once you come into the house of God, like Jacob, you say, this is a terrible place. This is none other than the house of God and the gate of heaven. That's whenever we come... Uh, uh, and touch the house of God. Whenever we touch the lampstand, uh, it is a, the place where the Holy Spirit is sovereign and where therefore, in spite of all the difficulties and in spite of all the flesh and in spite of all the failing and in spite of the sin, the Holy Spirit is there dealing with it all and sorting it all out. For this house of God we're talking about is not an idealistic thing at all. It's not some wonderful company of select 
and perfect saints through whose dear and pious minds never an evil thought flitter, flatters or flits. Um, uh, it's not that at all. It is what we find in the New Testament. Of course, it would be wonderful if God could get us to such a place where evil thoughts don't flutter through our minds. That must forever be our goal. It is certainly the goal of God. But, and this is the point, God again is a realist. He knows the old flesh life. He knows what it's worth. He knows what it's capable of. And he knows its resources and its energy and its strength. And the house of God is where he deals with it. You don't get away with anything. But it's more than that. The house of God is not just where the gospel is preached. God knows the gospel is preached in all kinds of places. I myself have heard a Roman Catholic monk preaching the gospel. It's, it, it, it is preached truthfully in all kinds of places by all kinds of people. Uh, it the house of God, the hallmark, the characteristic of the house of God is the presence of God. Something above and beyond the people and even beyond the preaching. So that the preaching is the interpretation of a presence already felt. It is not that you're trying to just persuade people uh, uh, about something, but rather they have hit something already. And the preaching is about the interpretation. They can be antagonistic, they can shrug it off, they can laugh at it, they can deride, uh, uh, and all the rest of it, or they can come to the truth. Surely that's what it means when we are told in the Corinthian letter, an unsaved man shall come in and shall fall on his face and shall worship. An unsaved man shall fall on his face and shall worship, saying, God is here. That's the kind of uh, thing the Lord wants. And that's, that's what is meant by the lampstand all of gold. It is the presence of God, people in need, people who are hopeless, people who are helpless. They can hear the gospel, and they know it's the truth, and yet something holds them back. But when they touch the presence of God, just as in the days of the Lord's earthly life, they start to flock to him, because they are touching someone they know that understands Someone who is above and beyond all the petty and narrow ideas of human beings. It is the presence of God. I cannot understand the idea that has grown up in, in evangelical circles um, that, that the sinner should sort of um, rush out of the door and, and sort of bury himself in a ditch um, because God is so holy. People don't do it. Even in revival, what they do is they fall down before God and cry. Only the man who, um, who doesn't want to get right with God will go out and say, I'll never go back there again in my life. My point is this, that in the Gospels, the sinner and the publican flock to Jesus. Isn't that extraordinary? 
I don't see sinners and publicans flocking to most of the ministers of the gospel I know. Why? Well, because there seems to be such an aura of holiness and, and sort of piety about them that you, that man says, they wouldn't understand him. What was it about the Lord Jesus that attracted such people? It was this that infuriated the Pharisees and the scribes. It infuriated them. Not because they were hypocrites. Many of them were. Many of them were unwitting hypocrites. Like many of us. Unwitting hypocrites. The thing that infuriated them, they felt there must be something wrong with the man that, he, that these people flock to him. Birds of a feather flock together. There must be something wrong with him that somehow or other these people, these prostitutes and, and, and tax gatherers and, and harlots and thieves and all the lower dregs, they seem to flock to him. They sit around him, they talk with him. I suppose there must have been knowing a little of that. I suppose there must have been all the normal banter. I not necessarily the Lord indulged in it, but certainly there would have been on the part of the other. It's an extraordinary thing. Where do you find uh, such a thing? You don't, do you? You can't find such a thing. Instead, we have to drag people in by the scruff of their necks almost uh, into a service, somehow or other. Where there is the lampstand all of gold, eh, the presence of God, it, it, it somehow meets the deepest need of the human heart, whatever that need might be. And I'm sure that is the testimony of Jesus. You see the testimony of Jesus beautifully set forth by the same apostle who wrote down the book of Revelation in the Gospel. You find it again and again and again. You find it, for instance, in the wedding. There was a wedding with all its festivity, all its gaiety, all its joy. The testimony was there. When they couldn't, uh, they, they had a need and couldn't do anything about it, water turned into wine. Big problem. For those who've signed the temperance pledge. But nevertheless, there it is. He turned not wine into water, but water into wine. And furthermore, it was the best vintage that everyone said that they'd ever tasted. Not tasted such vintage, they said. Most people keep this best stuff, uh, have it at the beginning, and when people are lost, being a little bit merry, then they had the worst stuff. But they said, you've kept the best vintage to the last. This was the Lord's doing. The fact of the matter was, it was the presence of God that can turn something that is just ordinary into something quite different. You've got it again in the woman of Samaria. You've got it again in the woman taken in adultery. You've got it again all through the Gospel of John. You've got the presence of the Lord Jesus. It wasn't just that he spoke. It was his presence. Why, when that woman taken in adultery was thrust into his presence, he hardly said a word. Yet his presence did it. They went out one by one, from the eldest to the youngest. Out they all fled. And the woman herself was chained. You've got it with Pilate. And the Lord Jesus stood before him and that man finally 
from the depths of his heart came that question, what is truth? It was the presence of God. You have it on the cross when there were two thieves, both deriding the Lord. One began to see something that he had never before seen in a human being. It was the testimony. It was the presence of God. He stopped deriding. He stopped his blasphemy. He stopped his mockery. And there on the cross, he was converted. It was the presence of God. Don't for one moment think that the Lord Jesus preached an evangelistic sermon. He didn't. It was the presence of God. I hope I've made my point that uh, the testimony of Jesus is, is the heart of the matter and is symbolized by this lampstand all of gold. So in the seven churches we have mentioned in Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3, we read this. The Lord says to the church at Ephesus, if thou dost not repent, I will move thy lampstand out of its place. Now, what does that mean? It means that the church at Ephesus would go clean on with all its activities. They would still have their prayer meetings. They would still have their Bible study. They would still have their evangelistic meetings. They would still probably have the breaking of bread. They would have all the paraphernalia of a church. Outwardly, the whole thing went on. It was still a church. Everything went on just as it had always gone on. But the testimony of Jesus had been removed. The presence of God God. Now the extraordinary thing is we often feel that we ought to feel the presence of God and this is just why so often people do things or say things that they should not say uh, because they do not recognize the presence of God. We, are, we got this fairly story idea of the presence of God that it's always a kind of feeling. Now it isn't. Do you know that in the wilderness for 40 years there was the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire? For 40 years manna came every morning. For 40 years water came out of a rock in a miraculous way. 40 years and that 40 years was a story of murmuring murmuring. It came to such a point that they were actually contradicting God. Now how? You say, ah, oh, well, the presence of God couldn't have been there. Otherwise, if the presence of God had been there, people couldn't have murmured. My dear friend, that's just the point. Sometimes the presence of God is so quiet, is so routine, so usual, in one sense, if I may put it, I trust reverently, that we start to say things we would never dare to say if we thought the Lord was there. It is even more so now in the church for the pillar of the cloud and fire in one sense is represented by this lampstand all of gold. And, uh, and uh, you know, uh, the presence of God is, is vested and expressed in human beings. It's so easy to just see the human being. Then we start to say, oh, and we say so and so and so and so and so. 
we don't realise. It was not the person, but the law. The presence of God. Well now, if I don't sum up some of these things, you'll never get it. Too much introduction and nothing else. So we'll start summing up uh, some of the things that uh, um, about the lampstand all of gold. The first thing I would like you to underline about what we have been <clears throat> seeing in these past weeks is this. It was all of pure gold. In Zechariah uh, chapter 4, verse 2, we read, A lampstand all of gold. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 12, we read seven golden lampstands. In Exodus chapter 25 and verse 31, we read, And thou shalt make a lampstand of pure gold. Pure gold. Now, this, this lampstand, it was of pure gold. What does that represent? Well, I think most of you know uh, that gold in the word of God symbolizes the nature and the character and the life of Christ. If you like, divine nature, divine character, divine life. I think it's more simply and practically put when we say it is the nature of Christ, the character of Christ, the life of Christ is represented by gold. Wherever you look in the Bible, you will find this holds good. We have been made partakers of the divine nature. Or as it puts it in Hebrews chapter 3, we, if we hold fast our confidence to the end, have been made partakers of Christ. He that is joined to the Lord is one spirit. All of gold. Pure gold. The house of God is not your old man and my old man, your old woman, and uh, not my old woman, but someone else's old woman, just sort of brought together and sort of uh, 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 linked together. That's not the house of God. But many of us have got that idea, and that's why sometimes some things come into the house of God and into its building that have no business to be there. Because we get the idea of freedom, which really means freedom for our flesh. There's no freedom for the flesh in the house of God. This lampstand is of all of pure gold. In other words, it is made out of the nature and the character and the life of Christ. In other words, it's not what I am in myself but what I am by the grace of God in Christ. It is what Christ in me can be. That's the point. That's the point. The nature and the character and the life of Jesus Christ. 
Well, now that immediately brings me to this point that it is therefore the house of God, the church, is not something of this earth, something of man, something of the flesh, something of this world. But it is from heaven. It is of God. It is of Christ. It is spiritual. Now that doesn't mean to say that we're not down here on earth and we're not in flesh and blood and that it's not a matter to do with flesh and blood but it is like the Lord Jesus. He was flesh and blood but he was not of the earth, earthy. He was of heaven. Heaven. Where did the church originate? Did it originate in the upper room after Calvary, where 120 people were gathered together in an upper room, there they were, a congregation of 120 devoted believers, with an open Bible before them, and the faith in the atoning death of the Lord Jesus Christ, and in his bodily resurrection, and a little later on, in his bodily return, when he left them. They had an absolute faith. They had a complete Old Testament, which is more than many have today in Christian circles. They had pure doctrine. Now then, where did the church start? Did it start with that 120? Well, someone says, of course it did. That's where it all began. They were the people that went out and did everything. No, just wait. You've made a great mistake. The church started with the descent of the Holy Spirit. Now mark it. The descent of the Holy Spirit. The church hasn't come up out of the earth, but come down out of heaven. <coughs> Therefore all that's happened came with the Holy Spirit. It was the head at the right hand of God the Father made real by the Holy Spirit in 120 members of a body. Not a congregation anymore, but a body. Not just 120 units, but 120 members of a body. It was that simple group of people that were destined to start a revolution that shook the world. It came from heaven. In other words, let me put it this way, it was all of pure gold. Now, don't get wonderful ideas and think, ah, how wonderful it must have been to be there. Within a matter of weeks, they were arguing, haggling, as I reckon only those perhaps with a Jewish background could, haggling, and furthermore, over money. The Hellenistic ones said that their widows were not getting paid what the Jewish ones were, the Judean Jews were, the Hebrew Jews. So there was a terrible hoo-ha. Everyone up and out, oh, what's happened to the testimony? What's happened to the lampstand? All of pure gold. It only just came down from heaven a little while ago. Tremendous things have happened. Here they are all fighting. Well, you know what happened, I'm sure. They got on their knees and prayed, and the Holy Spirit sorted it out. Funny thing was, seven men were appointed, and every one of them was a Hellenist. Isn't that beautiful? The Judean, the Hebrew uh, Christians, 
allow the Holy Spirit to direct them to appoint seven who were Hellenistic in background. They could have easily said, now then, don't put any of them up. They have all our widows won't get the mothers. But no, the Holy Spirit was sovereign and he did the work and he did the right work. Don't get a rosy ideas about the early church. There was an Ananias and a Sapphira. They went out and said that they sold their plot of ground, kept back quite a lot of the money, and then came in and said, we, we, this is all. We give everything to the Lord. You know the story, don't you? They fell down dead, one after the other. They only just buried the husband when the wife came in. The same judgment fell upon her. Well, now then, the fact of the matter is that in spite of it all being of pure gold, there was a lot that wasn't. In other words, this was all the seamy side of it. The lampstand was there. The testimony was there. But all this seamy side was on every side of it, all around it. But because the lampstand was there, the work was done. No one got away with anything. Because the Holy Spirit was making real the authority of the head in the church. All of pure gold. Now someone says to me, well then how can it happen amongst us? You can't set up a church. Oh my dear friend. You can't set up a church. People run all over the world setting up churches. Half the trouble. We've got monuments over the whole world like some massive spiritual graveyard. All over the place. Rest in peace. Here lies the body of such and such. Raised up by so and so and died. So and so. It's everywhere. And many people say, what's the point of having a New Testament pattern? You go to a New Testament pattern place and it's more lifeless than a really liturgical place. And then people say, God can't bother about such things, can he? Well, they're not wrong. There is a sense in which God doesn't bother about such things. Patterns, 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 patterns. Those patterns have been produced more out of the head and then have been, by fleshly hands, put into operation. But whenever the Holy Spirit moves, as he has done again and again in church history, something comes out of his life in the people. And out of that life, corporately, evolves all kinds of things. Order, not chaos. Function. Not lethargy. Gift. Not just one man ministry. It all comes out from the Holy Spirit within. Lampstand all of gold. Now you'd say to me, Ah, oh, well then why doesn't it happen more with me? Why? Well, this is just the whole point. If you read Revelation chapter 3 and um, uh, verse, <coughs> I think it's about 18. Revelation 3. Verse 18, I counsel thee to buy of me gold refined in the fire that thou mayest become free. Here it is. The Lord says this gold doesn't just come into you willy-nilly. I may have saved you by grace, but the gold has to be bought. Why is there not this lampstand? all of pure gold because the gold must be bought and it must be bought not by one person but by a number of people 
The measure in which that lampstand is produced and created is the measure in which there are men and women prepared to pay the price. Because it means nothing less than the dislodgement of you and me and the bringing in of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, I must decrease, he must increase. And then we don't like it, do we? None of us like it. If we can feel that the church is going to offer us a sphere of ambition, a sphere of self-satisfaction, a sphere of fulfillment, a sphere where we can be socially happy, a sphere where somehow or other we can get relationships, we're happy. You see, it's the old self-principle again. It's, what am I getting out of it? And God is so gracious that he allows us just to go on like that. All right, he says, all right, all right. If you want to look at it like that, you go on. But you lose everything in the end. You won't lose your salvation. You won't lose blessing. But you'll lose your inheritance. Because there has to come a time when we grow up spiritually and we no longer bother about what am I getting, but what is he getting? Not what I need, but what does he need? None of my satisfaction, but his satisfaction. <coughs> we go over from my inheritance to his inheritance, in a sense. It is a tremendous step when we step from self-centered Christianity to Christ-centered. Do you know, dear child of God, that nearly all our conventions are built and campaigns, but campaigns are right, because the gospel is based on selfishness. In other words, the gospel is held out to us because we fear death, we fear hell, we are empty, we are aimless, we are purposeless. God holds it out to us knowing very well it's the only way he can get us. He plays on the self-principle. You will go to hell. You have nothing in this life. You have nothing beyond it. Come to me. It's the self-principle. Come unto me, all ye that are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. See? It's the self-principle. Come. And we all come like that, don't we? None of us come to say, I'm coming to satisfy the Lord. Not one of us. We never thought of it. Wouldn't dream of coming. Some of us have to go through deep waters before we're even prepared to say we need the Lord. But it's what we get. Do you know most of our campaigns are built on this? It's a tragedy, but they are. And it's because of the poor immaturity of us Christians. We have conventions for the deepening of spiritual life and so on, fullness of spiritual life. And what is the thing? It's all um, what you need. Joy, peace. Uh, what, do you, what do you need? Do you need power? Uh, do you need satisfaction? Uh, do you need... And so, of course, it's the old principle again played upon. See? Do you know, that is why the children of Israel died in the wilderness. They were not prepared to step away from the self-principle. 
Why do you think that with the manna and the quails and the water and the tabernacle and the presence of God on Mount Sinai and the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night and all the speaking of God and all the other things, don't you think that was enough? But no, why did they murmur and murmur and murmur and listen to them? They say, why have you brought us out into the desert? We had been better off in Egypt. It wasn't what the Lord was getting, but what they were getting. When they got out into a wilderness, they didn't like it. Because it was, they came out of Egypt for what they were going to get. Their own little plot of land in the promised land, where they could plant their own vine and their own fig tree and have their own, I don't think they had cows, but anyway, you know what I mean. They had their own little small holding. What I'm going to get out of all this. Away from those Egyptian taskmasters. Away from that hard life in Egypt. Never once did they think <coughs> about the Lord's satisfaction. Or the Lord's purpose. Or the Lord's need. So they died. All except you. They didn't lose their salvation. But they lost their inheritance. Because, dear child of God, you and I have to grow up in the end, and I'm wandering now from the point, um, but you and I have to grow up in the end. We have to grow up in the end. You and I never will get satisfaction till we meet God. Meet God's need. That is the deepest lesson a Christian can learn. And it is the sign that at last you're growing up. The joy of the Lord is your strength. You see, in other words, it, there comes a point where suddenly we realize I shall be at peace when God is at peace. I shall have joy when God is. I shall be satisfied when he is satisfied. I shall inherit when he inherits. When that point comes, we grow up. Suddenly we reach spiritual adulthood. We start to be irresponsible. We start to care for others. We start to go through thick and thin. It's no more, oh dear, poor me, poor me. I'm not getting anything. But now, it is just around the other way. We go over into the land and possess it. All of gold. Second thing, very quickly, is that the gold came through free will offerings. Uh, where did this, go, this lampstand all of gold? How was it made? Well, if you look in Exodus and chapter 35 and uh, verse 4 and 5, you will read this. And Moses spake unto all the congregation of the children of Israel, saying, This is the thing which the Lord commanded, saying, Take ye from among you an offering unto the Lord. Whosoever is of a willing heart, let him bring it, the Lord's offering, gold and silver and brass and so on. And then, in verse 20, And all the congregation of the children of Israel departed from the presence of Moses, and they came, every one whose heart stirred him up, and every one whom his spirit made willing, and brought the Lord's offering for the work of the tent of meeting for all the service thereof for the holy garments. 
And they came, both men and women, as many as were willing-hearted, and brought brooches and earrings and signet rings and armlets, all jewels of gold, even every man that offered an offering of gold unto the Lord. Verse 29, the children of Israel brought a freewill offering unto the Lord, every man and woman whose heart made them willing to bring for all the work which the Lord had commanded to be made by Moses. Now again, going back to another little point we made on Sunday morning, the fact of the matter is, God doesn't press us. God is not, God is not a dictator. He is not a dictator and he's not a tyrant. He's not even a high-pressure salesman who all the time is sort of dangling up in front of us a wonderful vision and saying, come on, come on. Oh, no, no, it's nothing like that. The Lord says, you can see it if you will. My, the Holy Spirit will enlighten you, you can see the vision, if you are willing, if you are prepared, all right. But if not, don't worry. No compulsion. It's very simple, isn't it? But it makes us all so miserable. <laughs> it really does. I think if the Lord had thumped the table and sort of wielded a big stick and said, Look, all of you, you've all got to bring gold, not a signet ring, not an earring, or as the new version puts it, a nose ring. Not one of these things. And if you see anyone wearing any of those things, ignore them, ostracize them. They're unspiritual. <laughs> no, the Lord says, all right, those of you who want to wear signet rings and earrings and nose rings or armlets of gold or anything else, wear them. Wear them. Lord, be blessed. The Lord has saved you. He'll look after you. He'll keep you. You'll still be the pillar of cloud there. And pillar of fire, but you have no part in the lampstand or of gold. That's all right. Those who want to have part in the lampstand all of gold will make a free will offering. And the free will offering is what they themselves have bought at cost. What is it you offer? It is the gold of Christ. Not yourself. Not your talents. Not your gifts. But Christ. And that you give, just like Abraham, the biggest lesson he ever learned was when God gave him Isaac. Isaac was born of heaven. He was a miracle. He was born on the basis of resurrection. And then the Lord said to him, Abraham, offer your son. And you know what Abraham said? No argument. No argument. He said to the servants when he took the boy, we'll leave you here, we'll come back for you a bit later, while I and the lad go yonder and worship. Now that's an extraordinary thing to say. Worship. Free will offering of gold. You know, I'm sure that dear old Abraham, if the Lord had said, Abraham, Abraham, Take Ishmael, your son, and offer him. Abraham would have said, oh, um, yes. But take Ishmael. No battle about Ishmael. Ishmael was a mistake. 
It might be a good thing to get rid of him that way. I mean, it's all very spiritual. And some of us like to get rid of mistakes in a spiritual way. Very, very spiritual. Get rid of a mistake like that. Make a lovely spiritual sort of terms about it and talk in a spiritual way, the Lord's will and all the rest of it. And Ishmael's gone. Quietly liquidated. In the most spiritual way possible to do. But you see, it was his only son, Isaac, over whom a lifetime had been lived, and who only came when Abraham was nearly 100 years of age. And after all the miracle of his birth, God said, sacrifice Free will offering of God. That's what the Lord says to us. He doesn't want our old flesh. That's been liquidated anyway on the cross. He says, I want Christ in you. You mustn't put your hands on it. If your spirit has made you willing, if your heart has stirred you up, then give. Isn't it interesting in Zechariah in chapter 4 that it says about the two olive trees, it says in verse 12, And I answered the second time and said unto him, What are these two olive branches, branches which are beside the two golden spots that empty, literally, the Hebrew is, that empty the gold out of themselves. But it has been, now the word has been added in italics, oil, golden oil. But the actual Hebrew is that have emptied gold out of themselves. That, isn't that interesting? These olive trees are not just putting oil into a tree. They are emptying gold into the lampstand. And the gold not only produces the lampstand, but produces the fire. Do you know what the objective of the Holy Spirit's ministry is? Do you know what his work is? His, as we've sung this evening, Thy high work. What is it? It is to produce Christ in you and me. In order that we may willingly offer him for the building of the house. Produce Christ. Not just produce things. But produce Christ. Now, be careful, because gifts and many other things are all, when rightly seen, but a manifestation of Christ. They bring more of Christ to us, to me personally and to you. It's part of the fullness of Christ. But rarely is it seen like that. These things are seen as something additional, something sometimes extra, things... Christ drops out of the terminology. And it is the Spirit that is only mentioned. But it is, the oil is turned into gold. Isn't that beautiful? The life of the Spirit, the power of the Spirit, the indwelling of the Spirit, producing Christ in us in order that gold may go into the lampstand all of gold. Well now isn't that also found in 
2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18 uh, as we behold in a mirror the glory of the Lord we are changed into the same image from glory to glory even as from the Lord the Spirit it's a free will offering no let me say this and make it absolutely clear if there is any drudgery in your giving, if there is any sense of just being somehow painfully duty-bound to do it, it's not going into the lampstand. God will not have it. It says in the Word of God, the Lord is no man's debtor. He will never have it said that this one or that one sort of grudgingly said, oh, it's so terrible, it's so awful, but I suppose I'm better. And then in the end say, well, I did it, Lord, you know, I did it for you. Never. The Lord is no man's ever. He cuts it off. And the poor, poor child of God thinks that they're putting something into the house of God that's not going in at all. It's only when it's a free will offering of love. That's why I think that hymn of Wesley's has meant so much to me. Ready for all thy perfect will, my acts of faith and love repeat, till death thine endless mercies seal and make the sacrifice complete. My acts of faith and love, free will offering. No one makes a free will offering unless it springs out of faith. Do you know why? Because you're always frightened about the return. Cast thy bread upon the waters, and after many days it shall return to you. But you, all of us are, are frightened. Free will, free. Supposing Abraham said, I can't offer Isaac. Just supposing, just supposing, just supposing this is the end. But it was faith. It says in Hebrews that he expected God to raise him from the dead. It wasn't only faith. Faith without love is nothing. You see, you can have faith. And then it's harsh and cold. Love is the thing that makes you do it not from duty. Not even for because you believe that God's got it in his hand, but because you love God. Now, dear child of God, you'll only be able to do that if your heart is stirred and your spirit makes you willing. That's our souls that are the trouble, aren't they? Our souls that are the trouble the spirit that makes us willing. Now take it to heart what I say. God, as I said on Sunday morning, is the great psychologist. He doesn't demand anything. He says, look, I've saved you. I'm blessing you. You'll not lose your salvation. If you want what you get, go on. Go on. Go on. But if you want anything in the lampstand, free will offer. Not murmuring, not rebellion, not vicious bitterness, all the time, but a free will offering. Now, if you're the prepared for that, I'll take it. I'll take it, and I'll put you through it. And doesn't the Lord put us through it? Once we're prepared to walk on that basis, we do go through it, because we have entered onto another level of spiritual life. The other is what we get, and the Lord will meet us there and bless us. But the other is what he's getting. 
And once we're prepared for that, once the free will offering is made, the Lord will say, I will put you through anything if you're ready. So that I can get it. But in the end, I promise you, you will have a return such as you never dreamt of or conceived possible. Now that's to come. That's the whole point. The free will offering is something we make and we don't see much perhaps. It's to come, but it will come. But I say our time's nearly gone. Oh, what we could say, third thing I would like to have spoken about it was it was all of one piece and beaten work. Uh, it's an interesting thing, this, this lampstand with its six branches, three on either side, one in the center, are all turned work out of one piece of gold, beaten and turned. One piece. Not all done in bits and added, soldered together. See? But actually out of one piece, beaten out. One piece of gold. Beaten, melted, shaped, beaten, turned into one piece of glory. You'll find that in uh, Exodus 25, verse 31 and verse 36. It says, of one piece, it repeats it again and again, that paragraph, the branches are of one piece, of one piece, of one piece, from the stem, the whole thing of one piece. And finally it says, of pure gold, of beaten work, all of one piece. And you know, dear child of God, this again has a tremendous amount for us when it comes to the house of God. The house of God is the unity of Christ. It is the oneness of Christ. It's one thing, one piece, and it's beaten work. You see, we, by nature, just aren't one. That's the trouble with this world. It's not just that we all hate each other, but even when we like each other, we don't exactly always hit it off. I mean, it's an extraordinary thing, the way we, we sort of, the disharmony, the strife, the faction, the, the division that comes, even with people who, who, generally speaking, are of the same background and the same ways and all the rest of it. How much more when you get people with a different background altogether and different culture and a different a way of looking at things? Well, it's endless, isn't it? It's just endless. Now, you know, the thing that appalls me at present is the division amongst God's people. I don't know of anything that's not divided. All over the world, everywhere, the finest works. We're hearing division, 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 everywhere. This testimony of Jesus, this lampstand all of gold, is a one piece of beaten work. And you know what that means? Is this that that oneness of Christ once seen? has to be tested and tried in the furnace of fire. In other words, all the time the Lord puts our relationships to test, to make sure that they are based not on temperament, not on likes, <coughs> not just on agreement, intellectual or otherwise, but on Christ. Now, we have to be very careful on this point. But it is quite easy for us to say, right, 
oneness of Christ. You'll just have to put up with me. And I'll put up with you. <laughs> but that's not the oneness of Christ. That is not the oneness of Christ. That's a sure sign that it's the flesh that's trying to be one. For if you read the word of God, it says quite simply, uh, and I think quite clearly, in Ephesians chapter 4, these words. It says, with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, giving diligence to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We don't attain to the unity of the Spirit. We maintain the unity of the Spirit. But it is the maintenance which is the all-important thing. This lampstand is a one piece. How does it, how, how does this thing happen? Well, the Lord Jesus gives us the key in John 17, a very with it couple of verses these days in some quarters, um, but altogether overlooked where it should be clearly studied amongst true Christians, in chapter uh, John 17, verse 21 and 22, that they may all be one, <coughs> as even as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that thou didst send me, and the glory which thou hast given me I have given unto them, that they may be one even as we are one. Here is the Lord's prayer. We may be one. The lampstand all of one piece of beating work. May be one. If the Lord prayed that for Paul Gethsemane, how much more is it the passion of his intercession tonight? Think of it. It is the passion of the Lord's intercession that they may be one. A satanic miracle is taking place before our eyes. And all kinds of things that belong to with the most divergent view are coming together. And true Christians are quite unbothered about the oneness of Christ, as if it's a non-essential as if it's a prerogative of the ecumenical movement, which anyway is of Satan. There is a true oneness of the Spirit. There is a true oneness of Christ. And that's the thing that the enemy will attack and attack and attack and attack to the end. When the Lord had when the, when the devil had destroyed the church in China, outwardly, he went on pressing home this disunity till he sought to break up every true believer so that in their cells people came and told them that brother so-and-so had said so-and-so about them. Why should the communists bother about a thing like that? If it isn't a spiritual conflict behind it all. To break up that unity which cannot even be destroyed by putting people in prison with walls and bars between them. It's a spiritual unity. But it can be destroyed by taking on insinuations. And middle walls are petition up, they build and come, and the devil's the past master at adding the material for us to build with. He's like a builder's merchant when it comes to that kind of thing. He'll just go on and on and on and on while we're ready to build and build and build. 
First it begins that we can just trip over it. Uh, then we can only put our hand over and shake over the top. Uh, then there comes a point where we don't even see the other person altogether. The wall's going so hard. Can't even talk to them. Well, there's such a lot in all this matter of one piece lampstand, all of pure gold. Oh, there are so many things we could say about this. Just a few things summing up these past weeks. Uh, how can this be? Well, you see, it can't be. While I try to be one with you, and you try to be one with me. But when we both drop the trying, and say now, whatever else there is, Christ is there. And he's in me. And where there's humility, and that's uh, the operative word, humility, we can go on. Paul had it when he said, I determined to know nothing among them. That was Corinth, where he could have seen a lot of things. I determined to know nothing among them, save Jesus Christ and him crucified. That was the basis. Oh, wouldn't it be a wonderful thing? Wouldn't it be a wonderful thing if into every heart in this company there came a determined spirit, as determined as the spirit in our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, who has said, I will never leave him nor forsake him. Wouldn't it be wonderful if into our hearts there came such a spirit, I will never leave him nor forsake him. Not the thing, but what God is doing. No matter what happens, We'll go through. Wasn't it a joy to hear Brother Kong the other evening on that Saturday when he told us about the work in China and when finally the communists made that trumped up uh, affair in, in, in Shanghai and, and there was the big accusation meeting and, the, and uh, the church was brought together to accuse Brother Lee because the only way they could get anyone uh, into court and then into prison was by the churches themselves accusing their own responsible leaders. And all over China it happened. Everywhere. There were meetings of companies who had been together for years. And from those people, pressurized in their homes, told that their children would be taken away, told that their, that their wives uh, would be taken away, their husbands would be put in prison. So people stood up trembling and, and knowing that it was lies accused their leaders and on the strength of the accusation of those churches the, co the government took action they said we are not doing anything we are uh, 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 doing what the ch this church has asked us to do deal with what is wrong you see but when it came to that company they sat as you heard for one hour and not a soul said anything so they couldn't get him. They had to find another way to get back. Doesn't that speak of something? Only the planted communists in them started to make the row, but all the company were so knit together and so one that they knew that these were the planted ones. Oh, my dear friend, we don't know what lies ahead. May God keep us free. But if in those last days of Antichrist this country has for the last time, its share of persecution and suffering, I wonder how we shall go through. What will happen? There's no place to meet him. 
Oh, no, uh, nice meeting. No more long messages. <laughs> Nothing like that. I wonder what will happen. Oh, it was a joy when I was in Switzerland and I heard that dear brother we've often prayed for in Zagreb, uh, brother Jonke, tell us of the history of the work in Zagreb. You remember we used to pray for it years ago. And he said how the communists got hold of an old gentleman who had been in the work from the beginning, a dear man, a Christian man, a believing man, and they, they found out that he had always been an ambitious man. And so they said to him, now you are just the man we want. It was the religious office of the government. And they said, now we believe you are a very wise man and we believe you are a very uh, knowledgeable man. He was actually quite simple. But he was a godly, he had been a godly man. They said, now we would like to make you the head of all the assemblies in Croatia. But we want you to understand that for their sake and your sake, you must do what uh, some of the things we ask you to do. And so this brother fell into their hands through ambition. Gradually they mastered him and mastered him just quietly and quietly until he became the chief informer. Some years ago, a meeting was called a conference of all the brethren in that part of Croatia and Slovenia. And some of the believers, including Brother Jonker, wondered why this meeting had been called. It seemed rather odd. They were told that there was a certain amount of trouble in the assemblies and it had got to be dealt with. A visiting brother in a, city, uh, a town a little while way away, was walking through where this other brother lived and saw him killed by a tram. The Christian, this brother, told by the Yonker, and they, because they were responsible brethren, they went to his home to sort out the papers. What do you think they found? They found that that brother had so fallen into the hands of the communists that he had worked out a whole scheme. There were all the papers with all the accusations of Brother Yonke and all the answers which were going to come up in this meeting. A shock to them all. The thing was going to be liquidated. All the leaders were going to face trial, court trial, put in prison. God stepped in. The man went under a tram and was killed. And they found the papers and destroyed them. <coughs> so when the time came the communists could do nothing but that's the kind of thing that happens now what's going to get you and I through there you see just that little old self-centeredness that self-principle which goes through in the end is the thing that is our undoing and unless you and I are prepared for God to deal with that now we're not safe of course there will be always trouble in the church there will be persecution, there will be apostates, there will be traitors, there will be even Judases. We know that. But oh, how we wish to God that not one of us should be so. May God make us responsible in this matter. And may there be so much gold bought from God and put into the lamps. And may we be so committed, may we be so in the, in, in the clear with God that when that time comes, we have nothing to lose.
we can go through. Well, may the Lord help us. Shall we pray? Dear Lord, we just commit this time into thy hands. Thou knowest everything, Lord. We do pray that thou who hast spoken to us so much recently about this matter will write into our hearts the real lessons of it all. Now, Lord, we know we haven't seen it all. We probably never will. But, Lord, we pray that from these days there may, become, uh, there may come to us a growing understanding a growing appreciation of the significance of that lampstand all of gold. And Lord, oh, show us the meaning of those two olive trees. And may we all be sons of oil who are pouring the gold out of themselves into the lampstand. Lord, may this be so. We ask it in the name of our Lord. Jesus Christ. Amen.